You should be excited as a lefty that Labour are going to get back in. Surely we've had a Conservative government for nine, what, 13, 14 years? This should be a galvanising yeah, moment. Yeah, I don't feel it. Stahler's great genius is he says nothing and then a week later goes back on it. <laughs> <laughs> the Corbyn project's attitude towards the media, for example, I do not think was helpful. I think you have to try and win people round. I think if someone's Oswald Mosley or Hitler, there's no point in trying to win them round. But most people aren't that. Try to sort of engage with people and look for the positive. Not just go, ah, oh, fucking dare you, <laughs> fucking good part, and just try to just shut the argument down and see everybody who says something that might possibly be interpreted as bigoted, as they, they shouldn't be allowed to say that. I think that that doesn't help. Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. Our brilliant guest today is a well-known British comedian, Mark Steele. Welcome to Trigonometry. Hello. God, I hope I could be fascinating. Uh, we'll find out. We'll find out. We'll see if you are. Because we'll... when you're introduced as a comic, you think, oh, as long as my jokes work, I'm all right, but fascinating. That, that, by the way, is the most British comedian thing to say. A lot of Americans are thinking, why has he got low self-esteem? Uh, it's just what you're supposed to say if you're a British comedian. You, ca you can't yes, put... Yes, if can't... I was American. Hey, too right, I'm fascinating. Exactly. And that is what you are. So welcome to the show. Tell us why you're fascinating. What, how are you here? What has been your journey through life, Mark? How, how did you get into stand-up? What's been your career since, etc.? cetera? Oh, wow. I started as a stand-up in the 1980s. The route into it was very uh, dull. I just looked, I just fancied doing it. There wasn't really anything else I could do. I tried working in an office. I tried being a milkman. Uh, <laughs> I loved being a milkman. Not that far from where we sit here, there was a village. There is a village called Orton Kirby, and I was responsible for delivering their milk every day, and I was sacked because I was the most useless milkman in history. But when they sacked me, the manager said, they all like you, Mark. They just say he's bloody useless at delivering milk. And I was so happy. I thought that was the greatest review. And I was useless. <laughs> like, I would, sometimes you would, some of the milkmen would get back and go, oh, Christ, I forgot the number 21. I would forget whole streets. <laughs> I'd get back two hours early and think, I've got all my milk. Oh, shit. I just, because my mind's just gone. I've just, yeah. you know, it's drifted off. And uh, I would forget to deliver someone's bread and just leave it in the back of the truck and give it to them a week later. And they rang up and said, the, the bread's green. It's just gone rotten. And they, oh, I had a bloody work. It's hard not to get this done by the environmental health. I remember, and it was just, I crashed the milk flow because I wasn't concentrating. Anyway, I did various things like that. And couldn't do any of them. But all the while, I thought, I really fancy the idea of being on stage. And, um, uh, and so I just sort of rang up lots of the clubs that was like, you know, there's nothing very interesting. I often make things up. I did that. <laughs> I did that by accident. I did it saying I was going to make story up once. And I was on, uh, <laughs> I was on midweek with Libby Purvis, bless her. 
and the researcher rang the day before the show and she said, Mark, can you can you sort of tell us how it is that you got started in stand-up? You know, this young researcher, all very excited. Libby really wants to know. And, that. and I said, but it just won't be very interesting. She said, well, just, you know, it'll just make, you know, if you can embellish it a bit. I said, well, I can embellish it to the point where I'll just make it up. So <laughs> I said, well, I'll tell you what, all right then. My dad... My dad was a Polish diplomat and every year I used to go with him to Poland and he had to make a speech and it's the tradition out there that their son has to make a speech as well at Christmas and the only Polish I knew was these jokes and the jokes went down so well that I was booked up to do a regular spot <laughs> at the a lunch interval in a nearby vodka factory. <laughs> and... Uh, I just made that. So the next day, live, live on Radio 4, Libby Purvis is going, my next guest is Mark Steele. And, well, he had rather an extraordinary introduction into the world of comedy, didn't you, Mark? I said... Oh, Mark's being rather modest. His father was a Polish diplomat. <laughs> she went through, she read it all out. And so at various points, you know, years later, people go, that's amazing about your dad and the vodka factory. So the sad truth is you tried lots of other jobs, weren't very good at any of them, so you thought you'd give stand-up I think I tried every other job. I, I, no, I, did, I, I could have tried every other job. It would have been the same result, mining, airline <laughs> pilot, hot air balloon repairman. Oh, shit, I've let it go. <laughs> and so you start stand-up in the 80s. What was it like back then? Was it an exciting time to be getting into stand-up? Did it feel like you're part of something fresh and new? That's a brilliant question. What did it feel like? It's hard to say because if you look back on it, it was a quite an important little cultural moment. Stand-up as we knew it. Before that, stand-up was club comics. It was people who told jokes. I think most of them were great, actually. Uh, um, we can come on to sort of some of the problems with them and so on. <laughs> but I, I love, in fact, uh, right, this is probably isn't very, very fresh. I'm going to do, this is, I've been doing, there's no way, there's no better way of doing this, I don't think. There's a bit, a bit in me show that I've been doing. Because they, the stand-ups of those times would do jokes and then they would finish on a song. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the rule. And I've been doing an impression of me in me show that they go, so they, they'd come on the telly, they'd do their jokes, and then they go, fly me to the moon <laughs> and let me play among the stars. Fella goes to the doctors, he says, I've got a lettuce stuck up my ass. The doctor has a feel about it. He says, I've got bad news, it's only the tip of the iceberg. <laughs> let me know what spring is like in Jupiter and Mars. And uh, so, <laughs> so I thought, this, is, this looks great. And then stand up changed and you had the, this sort of very, very, quite a big cultural shift, really, in stand-up being something that was different. It was people writing their own material, not just telling standard jokes about, you know, two Jews in a pub or whatever, but their own stuff and their own experiences or doing characters. And it was like Rick Mail and Alexi Sale. And if you did the clubs, there'd be, in those days, there'd be these crazy acts that be there was a bloke who melted ice That's the ice all man he did the ice man no yeah, yeah, yeah. He, was, he was a legend on the circuit but carry on no i just yeah, i yeah, just yeah. remember that someone <laughs> telling me i was like oh yeah the ice yeah, man yeah, yeah yeah now the thing is there is a there is a, a myth that is told so often about the comedy circuit of those days 
which is that what drove it was politics and uh, a sort of it was part of the anti-Thatcher world. Now, it did, it did sort of dovetail with that a bit, and part of it was a rejection of a lot of the sort of racist jokes and so on of the, of the 70s. But that wasn't what drove it. What drove it was that it was this different sort of cabaret-type uh, act. And so there might be one act that did something political out of four on, on a night in the, the, the 1984 in Camden or something, but that would literally be all it was. Or there'd be a poet, but they'd just be bonkers. They'd just do some crazy bonkers thing or someone would come in and start throwing lettuces at people or something. <laughs> it was just bonkers and exciting and of course uh, now the question was it exciting at the time of course you didn't you we didn't know we were at the middle of something that you would look back on and go oh that was a brilliant cultural show i don't know did did beethoven was beethoven aware that he was at the the beginning of a massive cultural shift of romantic music is against the sort of um Royal Court minuets or whatever. Did, was he aware of it? He probably was. But I bet there were probably loads of people that that weren't, you know, at the time. Or any musical, maybe, I suppose, in the early days of hip-hop or something. Or any, you know, maybe maybe were people aware of it. And it, it, it's only when you look back on it and go, wow, that, God, that was great to be at the, at the start of that. I hope that it's. I hope the history of it's written accurately at some point because it was my, one of the my favourite acts of the time. And when comics of my vintage get together, we always talk about these people. There was a guy. You know, this is why it's so frustrating when you sort of see. Oh, it was all. all it was all about being about anti Thatcher and anti Tebbit. One of the greatest acts on the circuit was a guy called Randolph the Remarkable, right? And he was this very camp man. And his whole act, just with sheer charisma, he would take 20 minutes to do this. He would take off his shirt, revealing quite a girth, and he would get a washing-up bowl and put it on the floor and he would announce that he was going to pick up the washing-up bowl with his stomach. And then the, the great sort of finale... <laughs> was that he would bend over to do this. And the thing that I always remember was that, of course, people would be tittering and he'd stand up and say, Stop it! I cannot achieve maximum suction without total silence. (laughs) (laughs) Fucking mad, but wonderful. And uh, probably... Not that different from something you might have seen in the musical, I guess, in the 30s or the 50s, I guess. But it was just in these little pubs and clubs and then the store, the comedy store, which I think was a really uh, important um, culturally, a pretty important little place, you know, a bit the the equivalent of CBGBs in the punk, you know, in in New York or whatever. Uh, It was a really really important little place so it was really really looking it's more exciting looking back on it <laughs> yeah. than maybe at the time and of course at the time course, what you're thinking most of the time is i'm bloody skinked and i was living in a, a squat and then a council flat and it was and you just think i wish i could earn a bit of money really um rather than thinking, oh, oh, I am at the heart of an of a innovative cultural movement. I, you know, <laughs> I wasn't any, thinking that any more than Mozart might have been as he was carking it <laughs> before he was chucked in a rotten old grave. But, uh, 
but yeah, it was. It, so, but looking back on it, yeah, it was. It was really, really exciting. Yeah, we have a tendency to do that, don't we? With all cultural moments, Mark. Whether it's the punks, whether it's you know the new romantics, or you yeah, know yeah, all yeah. of these musical moments, Elvis, rock and roll, where we go, but where we look back at it, and particularly if we haven't lived through it, we go, that must have been so exciting. Yeah. And it must have been, mustn't it? Amazing. I mean, yeah, imagine being at one of Little Richard's first gigs or yeah. something, the excitement of that. I mean, I, I remember on the, the downside of it, this is one moment I remember, and I, I uh, was this fun? So I remember going to Newcastle and these the, there's two blokes around this club and they and one of them goes, uh, you'll be staying with me tonight, Lee. <laughs> I said, uh, all right. And then on the way back, walking around there, I can't remember where it was in Newcastle, uh, him and his mate went, uh, right, I, I suppose uh, uh, I'll tell you before we get wrong there, like, there's that, um, like, me, me girlfriend, like, she, she just left me and she took all the stuff and there's, like, nothing there. I said, oh, well, I don't want much. He said, well, there's just nothing, like, she's all the furniture was hers or nothing, and she's just taking it all, like, and it's just... All right, and we got in there, and it was just a bear. It, there was no furniture, nothing, and it was freezing, absolutely <laughs> freezing. And uh, and he said, oh, like, if you've got a court or something, that might help, like, and, I, and I was just supposed to sleep in the corner of this bare room. And then he went and got some wood from out in this backyard and brought it in. And I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I thought, like, I'd meet Stort a fire. And I went, what, indoors? You fucking madman. You want to start a fire? <laughs> well, that's fucking freezing, like. And I thought, this is just mental. <laughs> <laughs> and I just got, I just walked around Newcastle all night until the first train came at, like, six yeah. in the morning, which was, because you know, I, I thought there was a, there was many ways I might die in this house. <laughs> Burnt to death, freezing to death. And uh, I don't know, it seems funny looking back on it, but I, I was <laughs> <laughs> No, I don't. No, it's not good to be in that. I, that. I didn't enjoy that at the time. No, I can't imagine you did, Mark. <laughs> but whenever anyone mentions your name, they always say, obviously, comedian, but it's prefaced with two words, which is left-wing comedian. You're identified very much by your politics, like you're a left-wing comedian, you remember the you remember the Socialist Workers Party, so yeah, that but, probably didn't help, did it? <laughs> <laughs> before we go, we, before we delve further into that, look, do you still identify as being left wing, and w w what does that mean to you now? I've never really uh, been a big fan of the phrase "the left" because it makes it to me it makes it sound like a club, uh, and it's sort of. It, it makes it sound as like it's something you're either part of or you're not. And I think that that goes against the very notion of what any anyone who would be part of the left, if it exists, should want to do, which is to find ways of communicating with and engaging with and winning over people who aren't in the left. Uh, and I... I think when I became, I was definitely still so I'm a socialist, I wouldn't hesitate to say that, but I I think that when I first become a socialist, and, I, and there were lots of, you know, it would be very, very easy to be very uh, disdainful towards 
the the far left and their you know some of their less some of their more eccentric ways <laughs> uh, but one when I first sort of engaged with them it was in the late 1970s what I loved about them there was a sense of humor about them there was a sense of wanting to engage with everybody about them and I I still I think I still retain that so when someone uh because a lot of the people in the the Socialist Works Party, when I met them, they were people who were from very, very working-class backgrounds and they were members of the trade union movement. Not quite a lot of them would be teachers and people like like that, which I would say very is very much a working-class job. But quite a lot of them were van drivers and worked in factories and bus drivers and stuff like that, worked in hospitals and so on. And they would talk all the time about how they would try to win people over, not in a manipulative way, but and they'd have mates and they'd go out... In all, the, in all the sort of social events and so on, and they'd be like, they'd say, you've got to be liked, you've got to be, you've got to do your job well. I remember learning that. It's one of the people, if you want to be, you know, if you want to have any influence with your workmates, you've got to do your job well. It's no good turning up late and people have to cover for you and all that sort of thing. Then, and then start telling them about the Spanish Civil War. They'll just think, <laughs> well, you, you wanker, you can't even, I'm not listening to you about the bloody Durati column. You can't even bloody turn up to fucking work on time. So, you, so there was a, There was a whole, I sort of learned that early on, that you've got to try and win people over, really. And that means you've got to be pleasant. You've got to listen to people. That, for example, when it comes to dealing with racism, right? So this is something that lots of people would would talk to me about who are older and so on. And they go in a workplace, you've you've got to, in your mind, think, who is the hardline racist? And there aren't many of those. You know, the people in those days, it would be NF supporters, National Front supporters, who were fascists, who were run by uh, people who celebrated Hitler's birthday, literally those people. Uh, Now, the number in a normal workplace, there might be one or two of them. There's not going to be many. And then you'll have other people who had ideas that you could say were racist, or they go, oh, yeah, no, I'll tell you what, they do They do, do most of the muggings or something like that. But those are people you take a different attitude to. You go, they're not bad people. You understand where they're coming from, why they're thinking that, what makes them angry in the first place. Just try to put the facts to them that, you know, that they're blaming the wrong people and so on, that they're... Some of the, the the nonsense and ridiculous claims that are made about how immigrants take all the jobs or so on. It, it, just just gently talk to people and get on with them. And I think that a great many people who consider themselves the left now, they don't seem to follow that same sort of method. I think part of it is social media. Because it's much, much easier on social media to just call someone an arsehole, wanker, you said the wrong thing about this, that, that, and rather than trying to... Also, similarly, or probably a slightly different point, but but sort of coming from the same place, you would try and find where you have a connection with someone. So that's what I would try and do. Failed miserably, I was absolutely <laughs> useless. But I, I, would you try to find a connection with someone. So you meet someone, they might be back, you know, say this is in 1982, they might be someone who, uh, as a, uh, is, uh, well, for example, they might be someone who is very anti-racist, but they might 
be, uh, they might be very anti-gay, for example. That would be quite common to find someone like that. So you go, right, okay, well, we'll, we'll take, we'll start from the positive, and then you would try and find a way of saying, well, wait, mate, you know, you're saying this about gay people, but you're believing the same newspapers that would say that about black people. So you would try to sort of engage with people and look for the positive, not just go, ah, fucking dare you, <laughs> fucking boss, and just try to just shut the argument down and see everybody who says something that might possibly be interpreted as bigoted, as they they shouldn't be allowed to say that. I think that that doesn't help. Anyway, that's a very long... Last time we were talking... Uh, Francis, we were talking about ADHD, and I'm, I've never been diagnosed with ADHD, but sometimes I've won. <laughs> I, I hereby diagnose you with ADHD, Mark. I'm not anyway, a professional. What, what, what was the question? The question was, could you pass me the salt? I, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, but I, so I, I very much, I, 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 although it would be very, very, very easy, and I have done this to take the piss out of people who consider themselves the left, especially the far left. I think that there were lots of things at the time in the people that I came across who were, um, who I think I learned a lot from in terms of just being able to engage with people. And certainly as a comic, I mean, if you sort of go out there and just call everyone an arsehole who doesn't agree with you, then you're, you're limiting your audience, aren't you? And one other thing on that, is that the Socialist Workers' Party, and like I say, you know, I can and would happily go through much of the madness, but one thing that was brilliant that they did was that they had, their starting point was that the, and this was mattered so much at the time, that the Soviet Union is not in any way a socialist country. Now, if you're sort of 30 now, you might think, why would you get obsessed with a, a question like that? What does it matter? But at the time, to me, that was absolutely central because I thought, I like the idea of a sort of fairer, more equal society, but there is a place that calls itself socialist <laughs> and it is clearly the most barbaric, appalling, despicable tyranny. And that that's just a that's quite a barrier and so but there's a lot of lefties mark who were at that time would be pro-soviet union oh mostly they would be mostly i mean it, it, yeah the socialist workers party was in a minority in many ways but particularly on on that issue because you would uh, i mean i remember going to the labor club you know where i used to go to in croydon and a load of them went and bless them they were i think they were sweet well-meaning people but and they went on a a tour of uh, Eastern East Germany. I remember them coming back, and they were so excited. And they were going, the workers are treated so well. We got given a tour of the town hall. You should see the beautiful building. And I could go. Well, you could go to the town hall in fuck even Croydon, which is not a place over uh, in which beautiful buildings are in abundance. Yeah, even the town hall. No, that's Tabernacle House. That was shit. But uh, you could go anywhere, couldn't you? And go Nottingham. You know, look at the beautiful buildings. Therefore, Nottingham is so. It's just but if you're in that mindset, but the workers are treated so well, we were shown. Of course you were. They showed you the <laughs> fucking. But oh look, they're all in the canteen, happy. Yes, because the first time in a week they were getting some food. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, of course, of course. 
And I used to do, uh, oh, God, see if I can remember it. It was a joke that, how did it go? It went, it, yeah, it, it puzzled me that if, if it was such a wonderful society, why did they have to build a 200-foot-high wall covered in barbed wire with snipers stationed across it to keep people in? If you had a party one night and the only way you could pe- keep people there was to build a 200-foot wall around it with barbed wire and snipers across it, and even then some people at the party tried to escape in a hot <laughs> air balloon, you wouldn't go, well, that was a successful <laughs> evening. So that was, uh, I, I was, and, uh, and that I haven't changed my mind on at all. I think the Soviet Union and all those other countries, you know, East Germany, Hungary, whatever, um, were, they weren't socialists, but they were, uh, they were appalling tyrannies that deserved to be um, dismantled completely. And Mark, so your interest in, in, in the left sounds to me like came through a, a concern for the ordinary person. Was that fair to say? The work, uh, et cetera. Is that, is that, was that your kind of intellectual entry into it or Yeah, was I it think it was else? as simple as that. Cause yeah, I think, I think it was. I think it was just, it's not, it's not fair. I mean, my, my uh, yeah, I think that, I think that anything that's, any sort of political philosophy that you that you you adopt that doesn't come from something in the gut i i think i wouldn't trust you know because so i think you it absolutely absolutely intellectualize it absolutely go away and get fascinated and read a load of books for example i found you know i remember i remember for the first time hearing that the british had done terrible things in ireland and thinking wow i didn't know this Oh, and so I, I just got obsessed with reading loads of books about Ireland and become all a bit stupid and crazy and listening to silly Irish songs and things. But <laughs> uh, I do one in my show, actually. A, yeah, a Republican song, anyway, mad, you know, all that. But you get, you know, I was 18 in my yeah, defence. Yeah. And uh, it was all very... But it it came from a sort of feeling in in me gut, and then you intellect. You want to you, you want to go and read the books. I suppose that back up your instinct. Mm. I suppose that's what you do, isn't it? Uh, and I wouldn't trust anything that came. I don't think anyone's become a socialist, but I don't think anyone's become any sort of political um, adopt any sort of political philosophy, have they? Because they've read a series of books and gone. I wonder which one is the one that uh, seems to make the most sense. I think you you read the book that were reading a book can make an enormous amount of sense but because it but because it connects with a feeling that you have anyway. Mm. I know exactly what you mean. I I don't think those two things are incompatible though. So for example, there is a, a my favorite sort of philosopher and he's an economist and many things is a guy called Thomas Sowell. Now right. he's probably he's a he's a an American still alive. He's he's quite old now, um, and he wrote a series of books uh, uh, that he was able to write to some extent. He wasn't able to write them because he's black, but they they were able to get the level of attention that they got because 
he was able to say it and not be accused of being racist or discriminatory or whatever. They right. got more resonance. And when I read his stuff, even when I sort of in my old in my days where I probably would have considered myself somewhere on the left, reading things like that where I was like, wait, this makes way more sense than the stuff I've been told to date. Right. That's where you start to change your mind. When, when you're given an explanation for mm. what you observe in the world that seems to be more accurate than the one you had prior to that. Do you see what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, yes, absolutely. But it has to connect with something that's... Yeah. So I think if you've got a sense of unease, I suppose especially if you've got a sense of unease about the ideas that are the dominant ideas yes. in a society, uh, and then you read something, wow, you know, like the impact that, say, early feminist writing would have had. Or, well, not early feminist writing, because that goes back to the... 1790s, but some, but say in the 60s, and the first time you had largely middle class women, but writing about um, the plight of being a, a woman in America, say, and if you were a woman reading that for the first time, then you, you, I could, the impact must have been enormous. Wow, yes, I do feel that. I do feel completely misunderstood. I do feel as if my life is just a pointless series of drudgery and or whatever, you know, whatever. I don't know what they, not up to me to say what they felt, but that, but that. Uh, and uh, as, as you did, um, I think it connects with something that is in your gut at the time. I had a sort of deep sense of injustice. I don't know. I was a very angry. I was very, very angry. And I suppose at the time, if someone had said, oh, well, you're probably a very angry person because you've got a load of anger issues deep down, blah, 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 I'd have gone, fuck off! No, I'm not! Because right? I'm fucking out there, you say that! I'm fucking angry because there are fucking millions of people in Africa starving when there's enough food in the world to fucking feed them, but the capitalist system doesn't feed But now I think, no, but I probably was... That's true, but I probably was angry as well because I was 16 and not allowed to go in the pub and that gave me a huge sense of injustice. Yeah. And how much of your political leanings, the way that you see the world, was informed by how you grew up, where you grew up, the fact that you grew up under the shadow of Thatcher? And, you know, there'll be lots of people who say the, the what Thatcher did for this country was necessary, it had to be done, but there was also a lot of people who suffered under her policies. So where do you stand on all of that, Mark? And was that like a, a really important part in your... Well, I'm a, I'm a little bit older than that. So I I was, well, whatever brought up means, I don't know what age you're brought up, but when I was young, when I was 10, I was 10 in 1970. And one of the things that I think must have landed in my head without us realising, because we grow up thinking that we're, we're just completely in control of our, of our philosophy, don't we? But we're not. We're all... We're all created by the times in in which we live. You know, the, we don't. You don't realise it at the time. You know, there were no atheists in, as we know it, in thirteen hundred because it wasn't really possible to think in that way or, or what have you. And so, um, and in the in the early nineteen seventies, everything around you told you that working class people had had a little bit of power, uh, collective, collective power. You know, now, the most obviously, the miners went on strike in 1972 and the um, and, as, and they, they won. And so there was a sense of like the, 
the mine, and there was an enormous amount of miners. Even at the start of the 1984 strike, there was 180,000 miners. A million miners in 1920, I think, in this country. because The population was 40 million. A million miners. You'd think if you had all the families and so on. Right. And so uh, it was much less than that in 1972. But there was a sense that working class people, the docks, the, the car factories and so on, there was a sense that people had a, a sense of power. And uh, take a programme like On the Buses, right? <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you've ever watched On the Buses. Oh, my God, what a magnificent little snapshot of, of early 1970s Britain it was. I, I looked at one when it came on some UK gold thing and I, I thought, oh, this will be interesting. And it is so, so terrible. <laughs> I don't mean politically. I mean, it's just the one I saw, Stan. So it, it's two blokes who were played by actors. The actors are 50 and they're pretending to be 25. And it's all about the birds, the birds on the bus, whoa, all that. And it's so bad. Sounds right up my street, Mark. Oh, God. Yeah, no, it is, it's entertaining. You're bringing back a classic, mate, a classic yeah, exactly. genre. That's what I'm doing and right I'm here. For, you know, I'm, all, I'm, I'm a fan of loads of that, yeah. that stuff and I forgive it loads. But yeah. anyway, but the whole, the central premise of On the Buses was... There was a an inspector called Blakey who used to talk like that, and he used to get so fed up because the the the, the bus drivers they wouldn't turn up for work. They wouldn't. They would do what they wanted. They they would drive the they drive the bus the wrong way and crash through a gate or something. <laughs> and uh, oh, come in, he'd be go oh, come in. I'll get you for this. And it just if that had been made ten years ago, it just wouldn't have made sense because this was a time it reflected. Uh, I mean, obviously, it wasn't real. You couldn't really do that if you were a bus driver. But it reflected a time when working-class people had a sense of, like, we've got a bit of collective strength. It was a time of strong trade unions. Uh, so regardless of whether you, you say that went too far or not, leaving that aside, I was brought up in a world where, yeah, the, if, you were, if you were a working-class person, you could, and you would, you could win. Now, a few by the time of the Thatcher years, if you if I was a few years older, I'd have been brought up with a sense that if you were a working class person and you were campaigning for something, you couldn't win. The best you could do is make a song and dance and, and march up and down, and then hang on, lose. Mark, isn't that a little bit unfair? Because you got Mondeo man, you got like the Essex boy wheeler dealer, loads of money. Do you know what I mean? Like the working class. Yeah, kids. We, you could win. You could win individually. Mm. Mm. Yes, I should. I should. Uh, um, but you couldn't that. win if you were a miner and get together with a bunch of other miners and yeah. get your. You couldn't agenda. win collectively. Yeah. If you were, you couldn't win by forming a trade union and going, yeah, yeah. "We're going to yeah. demand this, this, and this," and that. Uh, um, you know, that was broken. Yeah, that was certainly broken by through the the Margaret Thatcher years. Yeah, it definitely was. And particularly through the minor strike in 1984 that they went on strike for a year and they lost and the pits were shut and so on. And so that, um, yeah, you, you wouldn't, you, you just wouldn't grow up with the same sense of bravado and confidence that you must have. That, you, that someone might have had, you know, in the 1970s. And, and what so. do you make of the situation now, Mark? Because, I mean, one of the things that has happened, obviously, with your perspective, I mean, in that whole period of time to the present day, is you've got far fewer 
working class jobs in that conventional sense. The country's been deindustrialized. Yeah. I mean, what is a working class job? Now, maybe working on a train or, you know, there's, there's obviously driving a van, right? But there's, there's not really any institutions that employ hundreds of thousands of people other than the NHS maybe where yeah. there's even the opportunity for, for something like that. I mean, okay, you get the teachers union, but that's not the same as going down the pit either. Now, what does that mean for, is that why the left is kind of on this weird journey? Because there's not really that sense of working class solidarity that's at the bottom of it, because there's not really that much of a working class left, identifiably. I think there is a working class as much as there was, but it's so much more fragmented. I mean, one thing I would say is that, that those mining unions, engineering unions and so on, they didn't, when engineering started, it didn't start with mass trade unions. They had to be built through massive battles in the 1880s or sometimes little ones before that and yeah. then before the First World War and so on. They didn't come out of uh, out of nowhere. Um, and But I don't know how many people work in supermarkets in this country, how many people work in call centres. I think that they are the sort of mines and docks of our day, if you like. But, of course, it's very, very difficult to... Yeah, you know, I guess that at some point, you no, know, there there will be uh, there will be a movement. There well, there already is a movement to you to form trade unions in in places like that and bring about some sort of collective strength. But it's yeah, it's not it's not going to be anything like it was in the shipyards. Well, because so, they're not no. really careers, are they? Most people who work in a supermarket aren't going to start out as a junior shelf stocker and move up to senior shelf stocker and then, you know, this and, and progress through it and, and, and still be there 30 years from now. Most people now are there for a yeah. few years, they get another yeah, job, they yeah. work in a call centre. There's not that sense of continuity and then so the solidarity then becomes much more difficult as well as a result, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's No, I think that's... I think that's absolutely right. And it is certainly a people who would call themselves socialists. So I think when I, you know, in the 1970s, if you called yourself a socialist, you would automatically look to being part of the working class, what was known as the working class movement, the trade union movement or whatever. Now, that's that's not the case. Now you would, I, I don't know, you would, I, I mean, I think there still are enormous numbers of people who would call themselves socialists. Uh, but, I, I'm not sure what. It, it, they don't. They're much less likely to join any any organisation in any in any mass way. Uh, I guess I don't think the feelings necessarily changed. Or potentially, as I don't know. I don't know. The reason I ask you this question is it feels to me like, and please challenge me if you disagree, mm. is in having lost that solidarity that you talk about in that sense that there's a, a, a big group of people who have similar interests, who work in similar industries, who can get together and achieve some kind of outcome. There's been a move on the left, having realized that's not available, to look at things from a more uh, sort of privilege, underprivilege, uh, race, ethnicity, sex, sexuality, sort of creating a coalition of people you know, the working people might have argued in the 70s that, you know, they are disadvantaged by being working class, so they need to get together and advocate for their interests. And now there seems to be an attempt to kind of unite people around a shared disadvantage that comes from various forms of 
dis- yeah, yeah. discrimination and so on. Yeah, yeah, no, that's abs- that's absolutely the case. And I think that it's 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 so complex this, and of course we're sort of forever looking for simple mm-hmm. solutions and simple solutions in two hundred and eighty characters on Twitter. <laughs> right. That is just I just don't engage with it at all because I it just no good is going to come of it. I've seen you engage sometimes, Mark. Have I? <laughs> when I did, I said what I did once. <laughs> I, never again, so that, this will be a good we story. We don't do gotchas on the show, but go on. I, do I? No, no, there, I remember there was a little one, there was a little one where you just went, had a little bite back. Now, was it when, uh, it, it, well, there was, the, the time that I did was when Shappy mentioned something yeah. about Eddie Izzard. Yeah. And she, it was something so innocent. It was like, good luck to Eddie Izzard or, mm-hmm. or something. And then a lot of people who are very anti the idea that you could be bona fide trans then piled in and she, and she was getting all this abuse. And then a few of them were going, I bet Mark wouldn't agree with this. And, that, and then I thought, oh, no, well, I'm going to have to sort of say, well, I do here, aren't I? Because otherwise, it looks like I'm I'm not going to bat random, complete random person, mm. angry, angry person from Romford two three eight one six on Twitter <laughs> against my own partner. Yeah. I get and I sort of similarly, you know, with my son. <laughs> we were just talked about this before. My son put a. Uh, Your son's also a stand-up. Yeah. My son's Elliot's a stand-up, too, yeah. and he and he he sometimes puts things on there that end up causing controversy. He was put a very funny joke. I thought it was like cyclists say they've say they've got we've got the law of the highway code and that's true, but the thing is a truck driver also has a law on his side, which is Newton's third law of motion that says <laughs> if the truck hits the cyclist, the truck will win. Now that's a good joke, right? That's a good joke, but of course. And, I, you know, I'm a cyclist. I cycled here today. Well, except I went to the wrong place and you had to come pick me up. But <laughs> but it's funny. That's yeah. funny. But, of course, oh, dare you? You're lying. What about all the people who were killed? I think you're Oh, fuck off, you bloody... That's a joke. It's don't take things literally. And so then, again, I got a load of abuse, you know, mm. from people saying your son's been saying, do you honestly think that in an argument between you, or I don't know who the fuck you are, who sent an angry message in Twitter and you've got a little fucking St George's flag and your little thing behind and you... Uh, and my own son, I'm going to go, no, sorry, son, I'm with him. I'm with Terry. <laughs> Of course not. Anyway, what? what uh, well, the about? reason I so the, we we came onto that, but it's a curious thing that you make the point of, and we, we talked about it before we started. Do you think what's happening there? Because there's an argument about free speech and comedy and whatever, and every political side wants to sort of position that as a left versus right thing. But what's actually happening there is a lot of people don't understand jokes. They don't yeah. understand comedy. And what social media has done is it has given those people a window into what comedy yeah. actually looks like. And they have no fucking idea what's going on. And so they're like, oh, well, this was meant... Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you think that's think, what's happening? Yes. But I think there's some. I think that the question you were raising is a, is a more fundamental one. Okay. And I think it is one that 
people who are trying to sort of campaign in such way to you know to make the world a fairer place or so on have to try and get to grips with this so this is i now i would generally when when i hear there are certain people who when i hear them attack the woke uh woke arguments oh it's all woke these days i think right well hang on first of all get this in perspective the woke are not running the world We've had Donald Trump as president, who boasted he grabbed women by the pussy and it was hardly, you've really got to stretch woke quite a distance to include Donald Trump. Boris Johnson, with all the statements and so on that he's made, that we know what they are and so on. So the, the, the world is not run by, by the woke. Little bits of institutions are or maybe the odd comedy place you're not but even there do you really go i don't you know i don't know well hold uh, on mike just to counter that i'm keen to hear your argument however in 2018 nika burns who's the director of the edinburgh comedy awards yeah. said that she looks forward to a new woke future in comedy when comedians decide what isn't isn't acceptable and people would argue i'm just putting the counter argument mm. people would argue that the education system is largely run by people who lean in that direction. And there's quite a lot of evidence for that, right? You could talk about mainstream media. Now, there's very different types of mainstream media. There's Fox News and there's the Daily Telegraph and whatever, but there's also the Guardian and the BBC, which increasingly lean in that direction. So I think one of the reasons, this is a different issue, but one of the reasons people increasingly are sort of not interested in party politics in general is there's a sense in which our lives are not really run by the people we elect anyway. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah and and yeah. that's because a lot yeah. of the institutions that inform us and persuade us and show us things and whatever are run by a certain group of people who have a certain vision. And that vision isn't, you know, top down. It's just kind of coalesced around certain ideas. Um, and so I think some people would argue that the, the just because our elected politicians aren't woke does not mean a lot of our institutions aren't. But anyway, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, just I, I, throw no, that I, can, I, I accept that. Yeah, and there are places where, and and again, it would be so easy to, it's so easy to take. I don't want you to slam woke people. It's not what it's about yeah, at all. And, um, but I mean, curi- you can if you want. To. No, no, no. I'm curious to hear your point about jokes yeah. and freedom of expression. That's what you were talking about. Uh, right. Well, they, well, I tell you, what, I, I would start with this. Which is, I'm not saying like a politician, I'm very glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to start by making these two points. I think what the British people really want right now is to. Oh, uh, <laughs> I was with Matt Ford the other day, and he's got. He does. He's, I can't. I haven't got it, but he does it. You know, he's impressive. He's a very good political and impression. He's, yeah. he's got the starmer voice, absolutely. And he does the hands. And I can't. <laughs> I'm, thinking, oh, I'm very jealous of it, as I can't. Yeah. Uh, I haven't got it at all yet. Uh, but uh, I think that there is I, right. I'm going to come on to say that I think that there is a that there is a problem really with seeing arguments that might be described as woke as being what the, the main argument of the left. Mm. I think that that. Uh, given that, you know, I find that even the term the left problematic in the first place. So I'm I'm in a sort of spiral of difficulties with this. I think that the main argument of the left, should we say, should be that 
for example, the water companies and the rail companies should be taken away from the people who are the utter criminality of the, uh, these people who are uh, barbaric people who, who clearly don't know how to run the place at all, other than to pay their shareholders and so on. So that sort of argument that there should be something, uh, that there are all manner of things that could be done about rents being so high that it causes such a, an enormous sort of dislocation for younger people with housing, for example, that those issues. That doesn't mean that I would therefore say that arguments about racism, sexism are irrelevant. Absolutely not. I think that, for example, I think one of the great successes of, I won't say the left, but of people who have fought against the prevailing ideas, when back in those sort of late 70s, early 80s times, if you were in favour of gay marriage, you were an extremist. Now you are an extremist if you are against it because the ideas have largely won. It doesn't mean it's all won, but if you are gay in 2023 in Britain, life is incomparably easier than it was if you were gay in 1979 in Britain. Uh, now it's, you know, the Virgin Trains have a pride rainbow thing on the front of the... I'm not saying that's a you know, good or bad thing, but just as an example, there are gay clubs, gay politicians, people who... Are, no one was out gay when I was uh, in 1978. No one. And it was... So that is, if you could sort of, if you could jump from 1978 to now and just look at the attitudes towards homosexuality, that would be tremendously exciting, I think, the fact that that has, that has changed as much as it has. I don't think that's irrelevant. And I think also more complex, but attitudes towards women, it's so, so, so much different as a sports fanatic. The fact that now you've really got to be on the margins to go women's football, women's cricket, that's not proper sport. That's that's one now. You're on the margins, mate. Oh, you're on the margins. <laughs> no, no, no. I, no, I, I, no Thanks, well, mate. No, I, I, Is that a boss? There you go. <laughs> no, Throw I think you under it. Well, I, you know, I'm a, I, I'm, a fanatic I'm, for I'm a, cricket fan. Look, on race, on yeah. women, all, all, all of that. that. Yeah. Um, but, but I think that... For this to be the central argument of our time does not help people who are trying to make society more equal. It does not. I would, I'm on the side generally of people, people who I think if someone wants to be trans, let them be trans. I think that's fine. If I'm completely on the side of people who are combating racism and so on. What I really, really do find myself frustrated with is someone who will say that a writer should be... A writer should, for, should, for example, be... I don't... I don't... I think cancelled is the wrong word because I don't think that's in reality what happens. But I think for, for them to be harangued in the way that does happen sometimes... I th because of something that they've written that could be interpreted as racist, I think is not right. I think it's morally not right, but also I don't think it helps win the argument because I think that there are people who you might disagree with and you go, I disagree with you. I don't think you should have written that. 
I don't think that means you shouldn't be allowed to turn up at a university and make a speech. I think that that is shutting down an argument and it doesn't, how does it help? It doesn't help the cause. You're just making it impossible for people. So therefore, it makes it, it just angers people. And um, you can't say nothing anymore these days. I don't think that's true, but I think that that doesn't, I don't, this is, I'm probably not arguing this very well. I think partly it's affected by my age because I was brought up in a town, uh, Swanley, not all that far from here, as I've said, and it was brutal. The racism was brutal. Yeah. It was not, it was just foul. You know, the N-word said a hundred times in a night in a pub. You know, I, I, when I was a milkman, I have this really clear memory. This is just, this is not, it doesn't even stand out that much, but I'll just say it as an example. There were two black lads sent down by Express Dairies to hose down the, the yard the manager, I just happened to be in the office because on a Monday you had to go in and give all your money in. Mm. And this was on a Monday. And the manager's come fuming, fuming into the office, slammed something down on the table. I said I wanted them to send someone down to clean a yard. They sent down a couple of fucking monkeys. Like that, I remember that really clearly, but almost, but most clearly because it wasn't that out of, the ordinary, mm. and it was foul. And I think that a lot of what we would consider woke, right, we're not going to accept that sort of language anymore, has been what has turned that around. But it's also required an enormous amount of patience, arguing with people, sitting and talking to people who tell racist jokes and going, mate, you know, Finding ways of finding ways of combating it without just calling them arseholes. I think you have to try and win people round. I think if someone's Oswald Mosley or Hitler, there's no point in trying to win them round. But most people aren't that. And that's a, that's a real problem that I have with the left. Is I agree with a lot of the ideas of the left, but then I see some of the behaviour of the people on the left and who identify as left. And I think to myself, bloody hell, I don't want anything to do with you. Your behaviour is terrible. Well, they hate me, some of them people. Mm. But that's... Uh, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll probably slag me off more than you. Don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> really? no, but, what, do you know what? No, I, I, know I, I don't you. know. Yeah. But I get... I get um, there are sort of, there's people, for example, that uh, on social media that yeah. will call themselves, you know, that we back or bring back Corbyn or something. Yeah. And they, they, I've never said anything publicly. You know, I think they were, they clearly, they Until today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they clearly, right, I don't think this is that controversial. Clearly, there were a number of problems with the Corbyn project it didn't go as well as it might have been hoped And to. that was all a Jewish conspiracy, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> this is the point I was trying to make. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you know, so, but if... But uh, you're not allowed to say that to these people, but <laughs> I would just get it in perspective that this is... a 
this is a, I don't know how many people there are like that going angry, 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 angry yeah. on Twitter. I've got a joke of me actor. I say there was no collection of words you could put on Twitter that wouldn't annoy someone. You could say, I'm enjoying a delightful sunset across Dorset this evening. And someone would put, not so delightful if you suffer from sunset aversion Dorset syndrome. Actually, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> I have a thought for sad sufferers in future. I thought you were better than that. That no, is uh, very accurate. Uh, this is true. I did this react, but I mentioned Donald Trump. I referred to Donald Trump as a psychopath. It was just in passing, it wasn't. And four people sent me messages saying, don't add to the stigma against psychopaths. <laughs> 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 There's meant to be a stigma against psychopaths. They're fucking psychopaths. Well, it's but the, but this <laughs> but the, you see this is the problem. It's you know the left go. Why don't we win? I'm go because you behave like dicks. If you were nice about it, not all of the left I know, but there is an absolute fringe of them. But what is the left though? This is what right. You know, this is this is what I think it, it comes down to because I. Uh, yeah, you know, almost anything. You know, you could you, once you break it down, you could go. Well, what? What is that? What is that? Yeah. What is that political philosophy? What is that? Even race. You know, what? Is, how do you define someone who is Jewish or who is an Arab? It's not. It's not an easy thing to do. Um, there's a brilliant thing, isn't there? Sartre wrote a book about that. What? And of course, every definition you would give actually breaks down. Uh, except for one, which is that Jewishness is defined by the anti-Semite. So, obviously, the Third Reich had very clear ideas of what was a Jew. They needed to define it and categorise it because they wanted to know who to cut away. But... um, uh, That's a great detour. Well, (laughs) (laughs) just park it there. This is why... (laughs) The this thing about the I Jews, right? Isn't it? We went from Corbyn to Hitler in the space of a few yeah, seconds. That's not good, is it? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Corbyn, yeah. Yeah. So clearly, there were clearly there were mistakes. I don't. I don't. Uh, right. It's things that you could say that are clearly that should not be controversial. The Corbyn project's attitude towards. The media, for example, I do not think was helpful. I think that to sort of say, well, the media, the mainstream media is basically not something that we want to engage around because uh, that's just the media and you know what they're like. And I know I've come across people who would call themselves on the left who would very much have that attitude, uh, just dismissive towards the media. I think that that's not, I don't think that's Marxist for a start. The media isn't a, a group of it isn't just Rupert Murdoch and Dacre sitting there like sort of dictators of some planet that you might get in Star Trek that just run everything. The media is made up of, of it's a huge industry. The media is someone who you might meet from, I don't know, from the bright and bloody Argus. Go and talk to them, just establish a relationship with them, learn from them, talk to them. What are the issues in the area and so on? Meet up with people from the media. You know, we will work in the media. I work with people all the time in radio. They're mainstream media. Most of them are wonderful, brilliant people and they, they talk to you about ideas and you think, oh, I hadn't thought of that and listen and learn to them. Don't just go, I'm not going to go on 
I don't know, Radio 5 Sunday morning politics show because it's the BBC and why should I go on that? That's an awful attitude. And so, you know, I think that there was certainly, there was certainly that. Um, There was certainly that from, from the Corbyn project. And I think that that didn't do any good at all. I think it's much better to go on. And John McDonnell, for example, did go on things and come over very well and was very popular, I think. Anyway, I don't know. Well, but Mark... M- that's m- enough. That, yeah. What I've just said is enough to yeah, go, to, you slag yeah, it yeah. off Corbyn, you <laughs> fucking... It was yeah. your fault. I mean, anyone who's watching this is used to Corbyn getting slagged <laughs> off, I promise you. Right. Uh, but um, I'm curious what you think from your position. What I hear out of you is that you're an old-school lefty, right? You care about equality, you care about wages, you care about uh, ownership of infrastructure, not being in the hands of... Uh, you know, people who are not running well, etc. The question, obviously, there is: there's almost certainly going to be an incoming Labour government under Keir Starmer, by the looks of the politics today, as it is. Are you excited, at, from your perspective, where you sit on the left, about that prospect? No. This is what I meant earlier when I said there's no one you can vote for that's really going to change anything. But please tell me more. Uh. Well, this I'll, I'll repeat a discussion I had with Matt Ford the other day. And bearing in mind, Matt Ford is very much someone, his hero is Tony Blair. I don't think that's mm. being, being uh, unkind to him to, to say that. And a discussion, a lovely, lovely fellow, I really like him. And uh, I like most people, really. <laughs> <laughs> You're a nice guy. It gets me in trouble. Right. So, um, and the discussion we were having, I said, Matt, here's something that I think is very different between the situation we're in now and the equivalent situation, you might say, in the summer of 1996, you know, a year before an election, maybe a little bit more than a year before an election now. Blair, people remember, obviously, Iraq, and he's also remembered New Labour and all all the tearing up the left and so on. But Blair, uh, by this time, was very much associated with bringing in the minimum wage which now, oh, everybody accepts that. But that, the Conservatives were going, this will cost a million jobs and so on. They were going to bring in a windfall tax on the mobile phone companies of billions of pounds and use that for Sure Start and various projects, NHS and so on, which did happen. Uh, there was devolution for Scotland. The Good Friday Agreement was, um, Blair was quite central to, wasn't he? I know John Major was as well. Uh, there, the gay civil marriage and abolishing fox hunting, right, which is easy to dismiss. But at the time, a combination of all those things, plus the fact it was sort of, there was so many, there were openly gay people in the shadow cabinet and lots of women and so on. It just looked, the whole sense of it felt like this was, like there was a a radicalism to it. Felt like there was a radicalism to uh, to, I was never a fan of Tony Blair, even in those days, but... It felt like there was a sense of excitement. It felt like something was going to change. If you ask someone what will change if Tony Blair becomes Prime Minister, most people could reel off three or four of those things. Oh, he's going to abolish the fox hunt, you know, put more money aside. Now, is that true with Starmer? I've got a line I've been saying about Starmer's great genius is he says nothing and then a week later goes back on it. (laughs) <laughs> I, I just I, and uh, about a year ago I started to be excited when he was made it we're definitely going to bring the railways back into public ownership 
now I don't think he's, he doesn't mention that. The water is not going to... I don't know what he's going to do. Do you know? I don't know. I follow these things more than most people. I don't know what he's planning to do. It's just Britain can do better. Can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, do you think the problem is, is that the Conservatives have been so appallingly useless that he doesn't really need to offer an opposition. All he needs to do is basically stand back, watch the Conservatives implode, and he knows he's going to win anyway. So why would he Why would he make policy pronouncements when he doesn't have to? Well, I suppose that's his thinking, isn't it? I suppose that's his thinking, but I, I, I don't know. Uh, you know, what do I know? I stood for election once. I was fucking useless. <laughs> and do, so, <laughs> so, so I can't. I know what you mean, but but do you not? Because you should be excited as a lefty that Labour are going to get back in. Surely we've had a Conservative government for nine, what, 13, 14 years? This should be a galvanising yeah, moment. I don't feel excited. I felt more excited. I mean, I, I when Blair, the night Blair got in, I had a, a wonderful time and I wasn't a fan of Blair's at all. I was at the Croydon Labour Club. Fantastic night. It was just brilliant. All these people who had yeah. seen in there. And I'd been in the same room in 1992 and everyone was sort of, you know, it was awful and people started scrapping and arguing with each other and stuff. Doesn't and sound was... like the left, Mark. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> and so dis- oh, I'm trying to think of a joke I had that I used to do at sort of left-wing benefits was about where, yeah, when the police would go, there was an organised pre- organised left on the demonstration. That's how you know they were lying. The left is never organised. Yeah. How did it go? Uh, yeah, if the police had the same level of organisation on demonstrations as the left, they, they'd just be going, oh, shit, we've locked the truncheons in the pan. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's basically where they've got to, mate, by, by the looks of things at this point. Uh, Mark, uh, we're running out of time. Oh, no, I'm just getting going. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Before we go to uh, our last question, I wanted to ask you, you've had a long stand-up career. And it's, uh, it's always an evolution, right? Creatively, it's an evolution. In terms of your views, it's an evolution. You were telling me on the, on the way here how much you're enjoying performing yeah, yeah, yeah. in a way that you might have been more apprehensive in the past or mm. worrying about, you know, I, this gig didn't quite go as well as that gig. Like, what have you learned over a whole career as a creator, as a performer, um, something for people watching this who are maybe up and coming? I think you've got to... It sounds like such a trite thing, but I think you've got to sort of find a way of really enjoying it, and the audience will will know that. And all the little details, this is something I'm only really just learning now, all the little details and stuff that you do. If you're an actor, you know, and you're in the six weeks before a play starts, a director will say, try it like this, move over there, be physical in a different way. And as comics, we sort of don't really... We don't really apply that same discipline, and it's. And I've been trying to do that lately, and I've been trying to go for every little bit and think. Oh, if I'm doing an impression, just spend an hour getting it right, and it goes better. It's better. It's more fun, you know. Move in a certain way, do something. Just to enjoy doing things a little bit better, really, and in, and and have uh, and don't forget to while you're on stage to have a moment where you think. I'm enjoying this. This is special. And is it, I'm lucky, you know, I'm in these beautiful theatres and stuff. And, you know, see, not always. Sometimes in uh, Croydon, for example, <laughs> the Fairfield Hall was yeah. very much Soviet Union 1952. But uh, <laughs> it's, uh, 
no, I've really and what I've changed really, for really you? How did it. you go from the state that most stand-ups are in, which is, oh, didn't quite get a big enough laugh there, this didn't happen, that to 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 the point oh, you're I'm talking. I'm still a neurotic mess. Okay. I'm still the same fruit bat. That so how all did you become are. slightly less fruit bat? Is <laughs> where I'm getting that. No, I don't think I am less fruit bat. I think I've just accepted that I'm less fruit bat. I think I think a big thing for me was uh, obviously, I, you know, if people know me, they know me mostly through a radio series called Mark Steele's in town where I go around the, the, the towns of Britain we pick me and the producer pick six a year and we go and have to write a whole show about the town and do it in front of people in the town and be as rude as possible <laughs> and get away with it it's why the people who get obsessed with how dare you say that those sorts of people that's the mistake they make left and right do this they both do it they'll go the, the right might go, Frankie Boyle said this, our dairy, and the left might go, oh, you know, some uh, someone else, someone on, that we don't like said this, our dairy. And what? No, if you just transcribe the words on a page, you don't see the twinkle in the eye, and that's everything. And so in the Mark Stills in Town series, I have to like the place I have to and I do I go to these places every single one I've done 60 of these programs now every single one of them I get there and within a couple of days I've met a load of people who are just brilliant and they're passionate and they love the place and there's they love the fact that there's a barman who everybody knows in that pub who's just horrible and it's funny <laughs> or there was a bloke in Shrewsbury there was a bloke there was a bloke who ran the park and he was horrible to everybody <laughs> and I just I, I spent half an hour with him and watched him just shout at everybody and did a little impression of him in the show and you just do enough you learn enough about the place that you can be horrible about it in a way that shows you love it in a way that you will with a mate you know like if you've got a really good mate you can go what's the fucking matter with you you fucking useless <laughs> twat if you were just to write that on a page you but it's said with such love you know because it's it's not like just going up to saying it to someone at random and i think that doing that the last 12 13 years i've done that show first of all, one very quick example two very quick examples last year i did newport and as i was about to do it i thought i can't do this this was newport south a very industrial town and one of the, the opening lines was this is a town built on the mines and the docks and grime and squalor and now i don't know how you've done this the mines and docks have gone but the grime and squalor is more than ever. i don't know how you've managed that and as i was doing i thought i can't say this and they go nuts and cheer yeah. or in gibraltar when we knew we were doing it in gibraltar and i said to the producer there's only one possible opening line I'm so pleased at last to be able to do this show in Spain. That's the only possible <laughs> line we can start with. And people going, you can't start with that, but you can, because they know I'm doing it on purpose. Yeah. They know it's deliberate. You could do it if you went and went, yeah, I'm in Spain. They go, fuck off. Or if you did it out of ignorance. But if you do it like, they, but you, you can't fake that. You have to, And I spent a week there and I loved the people there. I thought it was just a brilliant, I think, all the the sort of characterisation of Gibraltar of being this stupid old English 1950s racist place. That's not true at all. They're not anti-Spanish, the people who live there. It's it's a wonderful, lovely place. And uh, and they knew that I could feel that. So they it was, it was fine. And I think I've learned from that 
you've, you've really got to like people. You've really got to want to see people at their best. And I think if you're trying to change the world and make it more equal and make it less racist and make it so that it serves more people, you've got to start from that point of view. I think there's so many people on the left as well as the right who really basically don't really like people. <laughs> and I, I think if you're going to be a stand-up, you've got to do that. You're, you're trying to make them laugh. If you, You've got to like them. Such a profound point, Mark. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the show. The question we always finish is, what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? Oh, God, I so much want to say something earlier comic. So, Go on, <laughs> say, it, say it. Say it. Rights for serial killers. <laughs> uh, what's the, what's the question again? <laughs> what's the one thing we're not talking about as a society that we really should be? Uh, this was an issue when I got here. Cushions. Yeah. I fucking hate them. I can't be doing with them. Women love cushions. Do they? Yeah, they do. Whenever you, whenever this is what you, I'm going wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that, that explains 30 years. <laughs> I mean, that's not the only thing they require, but nonetheless. Yeah, yeah they love a cushion, mate. Mark, you're on tour at the moment? Yeah, I'll be back doing the show called An Evening and Part of the Next Morning with Mark Steele because I go on too long. Well, make sure you check that out and follow us. Piano in this. And he's using, he's playing the piano in it as well. So do make sure you check that out. And of course, follow us over on to Locals where we will ask your questions to Mark. We'll see you there. Just how far would the Labour Party have to go before you decide you couldn't vote for them anymore? He says the true right no longer supports the Tories. How long until the true left likewise abandons Labour? 